It is a uh, true privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, my wife, Erica, my oldest daughter, Paige, and our son, Benjamin, and Claire are with me as well. Um, we live up in Woodbridge, uh, and I am an active duty uh, Air Force chaplain currently assigned to Arlington National Cemetery, where I do uh, funerals for the Air Force, uh, for Air Force members and their dependents. And so I do somewhere between 250 to 300 funerals a year uh, there. So. Um, and we will be moving uh, to San Antonio, uh, Texas, uh, this summer. I don't get a chance very often to preach. Um, it's been the first time actually in 23, 20, 22 years uh, that I've not held a pulpit every single Sunday morning uh, over this past year. So any opportunity I have like this uh, to, uh, to come and to share God's word is one that I look forward to. So yesterday morning when I awoke to a text from Colby saying, any chance you can go and cover? I didn't have a sermon written, um, but uh, I sat down yesterday afternoon and evening and early this morning and spent time in God's word. And I'm just really, really delighted uh, to have the opportunity to be with you this morning. In November, my wife and I had the privilege of attending a pastor's retreat uh, at the Billy Graham Training Center at the Cove in Asheville, North Carolina. If you've ever been to Asheville, you know it's an absolutely beautiful uh, area. And the facility there, nestled in the mountains, was just incredible. It was stunning in November in particular as the leaves had changed colors, were beginning to fall, and the setting was absolutely magnificent. In the basement of the main meeting facility on that campus, there's a hallway. And that hallway is lined with photographs and stories. They capture the life and the ministry of Billy Graham. And they speak to the profound eternal impact he had on hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children who through his preaching and evangelistic ministry were introduced to Jesus Christ. At one point, as Graham reflected on the gift of evangelism that God had given to him, he wrote these words. An evangelist is a person with a special gift and a special calling from the Holy Spirit to announce the good news of the gospel. You're an announcer, a proclaimer, an ambassador, and it's a gift from God. You can't manufacture it, you can't organize it, and you can't manipulate it. I study, Graham wrote, and read and prepare all the time, but my gift seems to be from the Lord in giving an appeal to get people to make a decision for Christ. Something happens I cannot explain. I have never given an invitation in my whole life when no one came. Did you catch that? I've never given an invitation in my whole life when no one came. Bobby, can you say that this morning? I wish I could, but I can't. In fact, more often than not, I've given invitations and no one has walked down an aisle to accept Christ. Maybe they've made decisions in their hearts that I haven't seen, but I don't have the gifts of Billy Graham. People aren't lining up at stadiums to hear me proclaim the good news. And while I've always been inspired by Graham, Another great evangelist, if you were able to look into the recesses of my heart this morning, you'd also discover that I feel some guilt. I feel guilty that I haven't shared the gospel with as many unbelievers as I know I should. Granted, I've been preaching for more than two decades, and so I've preached hundreds, perhaps thousands of sermons, 
but I've done so mostly to believers. And I know God has called me to do more than that. Can you relate? You know there have been missed opportunities. Doors that were open that you were supposed to walk through, but instead you walked right by. Moments that you were supposed to seize, but instead you allowed them to pass. There are people in your family, in your neighborhood, and in your workplace that don't know Jesus Christ and with whom you haven't shared the gospel. I hope it's okay for me to be a little honest with you this morning. I have a lot of excuses for why I haven't shared the gospel. Maybe it's just me, but in order to deal with my lack of sharing the good news, I rationalize. I don't have the gift of evangelism. I tell myself, some people are more extrovert than I am and are more easily drawn into relationships. I show my faith through my actions, I like to tell myself. And as a preacher, I have the opportunity to preach the gospel from the pulpit, which I convince myself fulfills my responsibility to evangelize. I have all sorts of excuses, but deep down inside... I struggle because here's the thing. I know that God's heart beats for the lost. And I know he wants my heart to beat for the lost as well. It's for that reason that you were asked last week to identify one person, right? One person in your life who needs the Lord and to begin praying for him or her every day. That's a powerful step in the right direction. But I would suggest to you this morning that it's not enough because if you're not careful At the end of 30 days of praying for that individual, you'll fall right back into the same way of thinking and acting. And before long, you'll be rationalizing your lack of sharing the gospel all over again. Church, this morning, I want to suggest to you that at the heart of the problem for most of us as Bible-believing Christians is a lack of fully understanding what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I don't think most of us realize exactly what we are called to by Christ. And even if we've heard it before, we fail to realize how important it is. You see, it's more than just belief. And amazingly, how much more than belief it is, is no secret in the Bible. It's not hidden in an obscure passage. No, this truth is in plain sight, and yet somehow, time and again, we seem to skip right over it. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry and at the end of Jesus' ministry, he tells us in no uncertain terms what it means to follow him, what he calls his disciples to be about. Would you turn in your Bibles with me? We're going to look at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and that calling this morning. We'll be uh, looking at Matthew chapter 4, verses 17 through 22. From that time, Matthew writes, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. 
And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. This familiar passage of scripture has been identified as the calling of the first disciples. If you have section titles in your Bible, you probably see a title telling you that. And you're probably familiar with the word disciple. If you've been around church for long, you've been to Bible studies or Sunday school classes, or simply sat through many sermons, you've heard this term used before. We use it to refer to the original 12 men who were called to follow Jesus. Simon Peter, Andrew, James the son of Zebedee, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James the son of Elpheus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. And you probably know that the word disciple means something like learner, follower, student, pupil. But most of the time, we don't go far beyond the initial meaning of the word to look at what was actually expected of disciples. And I think there's a lot that we can learn by doing so. As I studied even yesterday in preparation for this morning, I discovered that the, the, the idea of discipleship actually goes all the way back to the Old Testament. It's not really spelled out in the Old Testament, but there are clearly concepts and expectations of disciple-master relationships throughout the Old Testament. In Isaiah, the prophet refers to those around him as my disciples. We also see it in the prophetic ministry of Elijah and Elisha. We see it with the scribes in Ezra and the wise counselors in Jeremiah. See, there was a societal norm of master-disciple relationship even in ancient Israel. We also find disciples in secular ancient Greek society. There were pupils and adherents of great teachers like Socrates and Plato. And by the first century in Judaism, the idea of a disciple-master relationship was well-practiced and well-documented. I want us to look at what that relationship was, but before we do that, we have to understand how you ever got to the place of becoming a disciple. See, there was an entire educational system that raised up young men and women to be worshipers of the Almighty God. And here's the reason that Jews had this kind of system, because they believed that it was scrupulous behavior, not the condition of your heart, that defined a righteous person. So they put their kids through some very serious schooling to ensure that they knew the word of God and knew how to interpret it and live by it. There were really three different uh, types of schools in Jewish society. The first was, was a school called Beit Sefer. It was a school that young boys and girls attended at around age five or six. Think of it as an elementary school of sorts. It was actually held at the synagogue. And its purpose was for young people to learn the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They were taught by a rabbi to read, to write, and to memorize the scripture. In fact, by the end of this elementary-like school, imagine this, many of these elementary school students had memorized the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible. I have a hard enough time reading the book of Leviticus, let alone memorizing it. But 
by the age of 10 or so, the Jewish young people were steeped in those first five books of Scripture. Those that were especially bright, those that were intelligent enough to handle increased learning, were then sent to Beit Talmud, where they learned the interpretations of the Torah. They studied the remainder of Scripture until roughly the age of 12 or 13. This would have been more like a high school, as it were, in the 18th or 19th century in the United States, as it was considered the end of formal education for any Jewish young person. There, they, they would learn the, the interpretations of Torah, not just the words of the Torah. And finally, there was one more level of learning that was less achievable by common families. It was called Beit Midrash. And it was more like a college or a PhD program, or perhaps a long internship or apprenticeship. Only the most talented students could participate. And its focus was not only on learning interpretations, but learning how to imply them in intensely practical ways throughout life. It could last for up to 15 or 16 years, actually. You began at somewhere around the age of 14 or 15, and, and you, what happened is you would find a rabbi, a rabbi who you wanted to learn from, who you wanted to emulate, and you would request permission from that rabbi to sit at his feet and to, to study under him. And if you were given the honor of doing so, you spent your time with that rabbi. It's important to know that rabbis did not seek out students. No, the student did the initiating. And if you were honored enough to have that role, then you would be called a disciple. It was then that you would be known as a follower, a pupil of that rabbi. Now, those programs had no curriculum. There was nothing written down. What would happen instead is as you observed the rabbi, the rabbi also observed you. The rabbi would ask questions of you. The rabbi would challenge your thoughts and your actions. And in that relationship, there was a deeply personal, long-term relationship of surrender and submission by the disciple to the rabbi. So let me help make sure you understand. If you were a Jewish child, your parent wanted you to know the word of God. Make no mistake about it. They would send you to elementary school to learn the Torah. They would send you to some sort of middle or high school if you were really good to, to learn interpretations of the Torah. And if you were exceptionally intelligent and your family could afford to support you during your studies and travels, you could find a rabbi and gain permission to learn from him because he saw in you the potential to become like himself. And that last model of education was the model from which we get our understanding of discipleship. Now, we're going to come back to what was expected of these upper-level students. But, but I want to open the text again with those things in mind and walk through some of these verses together. So look at your text, beginning in verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at mine at hand. Matthew summarizes Jesus' message. It's an urgent one. Get your lives in order because God's kingdom is approaching. He continues, verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Notice we're not told that they saw him. Jesus saw them. 
The same thing happens in verse 21 when he sees two other brothers, James and John. Friends, long before you or I are ever able to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, he sees us in our sin. He comes to us in our brokenness. And this morning, if you're able to see Jesus, make no mistake, it's because Jesus first saw you. And be assured this morning that if you're here and you've not yet responded to his calling, but you hear the voice of the Spirit speaking to your heart, he's already seen you, even while you were at a distance. Look again at the text. What were they doing? They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. Now, remember, I I mentioned earlier, disciples were the ones that did the initiating in that culture. Rabbis did not. And so Jesus breaks that tradition and goes where these men are, and he calls to them. I find it interesting. He doesn't go to the uh, Beit Talmud to observe the most talented, most intellectually uh, able students. He doesn't go like a, a, a scout would go to a basketball high school game and look for the most talent. No, instead, he goes to a place where men are working. He goes to those who either first weren't bright enough to be chosen by a rabbi or who, worse yet, had flunked out of school with a rabbi and been told to go ply a trade by a rabbi. He finds some fishermen, and he chooses, and he calls them. The one who sees the heart saw in them what others had not seen. Church, I don't want us to miss that. Time and again throughout Scripture, God doesn't choose the brightest, doesn't choose the best, doesn't choose the most well-qualified. He chooses the broken, the dropouts, the failures, and he uses them to bring glory to his name. And so if you think for a moment this morning that God can't use you because of your past, because of your lack of talent, well, think again, because our God is in the business of using those who others see as useless. Go back to the text again. What's Jesus say to them? Follow me and what? I will make you fishers of men. I couldn't help but think of that childhood song. I look, but I'm looking across realizing most of you are much younger than I am. Do you remember that song? I will make you fishers of men. You do? You don't remember? Your pastor doesn't remember. I think we need to teach him. You remember? He goes, I will make you fishers of men. Okay, hang on. Don't you remember? There's motions too. You've got to do the motions right. I will make you fishers of men, fishers of men, fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men if you follow me. I should probably stop there. It's getting a little embarrassing. I wanted to relive that childhood memory for a moment. That imagery of being a fisher of men is a powerful one, right? Jesus wants these men and he wants us to be catching others for him. But I don't think that metaphor is as much for us as it was for them. Just as God had called David and Moses to shepherd his people, a skill set both men were familiar with, Jesus now calls these men to be fishers of men, a skill set they are familiar with. He comes to them at a point and place they can understand and offers to take a skill set they know well and transform it into a spiritual one. And I wonder this morning what skill set he wants to use of yours. 
What does he want to take that is in your hand and use for eternal impact? Maybe you're an accountant, an attorney, a teacher, a salesman, a military member, a government employee, a plumber, an electrician, a mother, a father. I don't know what your skill is this morning, but I know that God consistently meets us at our place and position in life and calls to offer to do with whatever we have in our hands what he wants to do in order to use it in miraculous ways for the kingdom of God. Just as he did it with these fishermen, he wants to do it with you and I. Return to the text. We're in verse 20 now. Immediately, we're told. And that word actually occurs twice in this passage. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. The same scene repeats itself in verses 21 and 22 with James and John. Jesus sees them, calls them, and they immediately leave their boats and father and follow him. Notice the urgency. They don't put it off till another time. Well, Jesus, maybe I'll come and follow you next month or next year when I get things in order. No, they don't hesitate. But knowing now what you know about being called by a rabbi to follow, why would they have hesitated? This would have been one of the greatest honors they could have been given. Those that thought they were of no use, that were not intelligent enough to ever be enrolled as a disciple under a rabbi, were suddenly not only allowed the honor, but were actually chosen by this rabbi to follow. And I imagine that Zebedee, rather than saying, where are you going and why are you leaving me all alone with this boat and this business, was thrilled to see his boys go and do what every Jewish boy hoped or every Jewish parent hoped their child, their son, would be able to do. And so they left and they began their life of discipleship. But what did that lifestyle look like? Have you ever wondered? We know that they were only with Jesus for three years, unlike many disciples, But what happened during those three years? We know the miracles. We know the teachings. But what are the expectations of these disciples in their maturation as followers? Well, there are actually four very commonly known expectations of disciples in the first century. And they're really helpful as we consider not only how the original 12 disciples went about following Jesus, but how we are to do so. And I think you'll see in a moment, as I did even yesterday as I studied that they're going to bring us back to one of the primary callings as a disciple. Arguably, the calling that is the culmination of all other callings. Here are the four expectations. First, disciples were to memorize their teacher's words. I found this one really interesting, and here's the reason. The process of oral transmission was the only form of intergenerational communication. The great rabbis and scholars didn't write down their thoughts. It wasn't because they were illiterate actually quite the opposite. Rather, they, observed, they believed the form of writing should be preserved for scripture and their teachings ought to be handed down orally. And so the disciples in that day and age were expected to memorize the words and the teachings of their rabbis. Imagine how this applies then to the writing of the gospels. The disciples already had Jesus' words committed to memory. So how hard would it have been to recall as the Holy Spirit began to inspire them those words once again? How's that apply to you and I? Well, Paul told us in Colossians 3.16, what? To let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. To me, that means more than just reading the red letters in the gospel. It means memorizing them. And if Jewish children could memorize the entire Torah, how much more should we memorize the words of Jesus Christ? 
Can I challenge you this week? In addition to praying for your one to memorize a few words of Jesus, something that you had not previously committed to memory. So their first expectation was to memorize their teacher's words. Here's the second of four. Disciples were expected to learn the traditions and interpretations of their teacher. In other words, they were expected to to see life and scripture through their rabbi's eyes. They watched how their rabbi kept the Sabbath, for instance, how he prayed, how he blessed food. And they were expected to learn from those practices. Is it any wonder that Jesus teaches the disciples about the Lord's Day? about the Sabbath, that that he teaches the disciples how to pray, that they ask him, in fact, Lord, teach us to pray. We too should seek to understand scripture through the teachings of Jesus Christ. And as we spend time with him on a daily basis, allow him to shape the way we go about the big and little things in life. So disciples were expected to memorize the teaching of their, their, uh, the memorize their teacher's words, and they were expected to learn the traditions and interpretations of their teacher. The third of four, four expectations was that they were expected to imitate their teacher's actions. Like a child who picks up on his or her parents' behaviors, disciples were to do what their rabbis did. Their deeds, speech, and conduct were all to reflect those of their rabbi. If someone knew their rabbi or his teachings and they met one of his disciples, they should be able to identify that disciple as belonging to that rabbi by watching the way the disciple spoke, acted, and even listening to his thoughts. Let me ask you, if someone gets to know you, can they tell that you belong to Jesus? Is there such a striking resemblance that they would say, you look like Jesus, you sound like Jesus, you act like Jesus. And if following Jesus were a crime, could someone pick you out of a lineup because you resemble him? Finally, disciples were expected to make other disciples. In other words, disciples in Judaism, not just in Christianity, were expected to spiritually reproduce. Just as they had been invited into a lifestyle, a relationship that had changed them, so they were to invite others into that same relationship. It wasn't an option. It wasn't an additional credit assignment. No, it was the the climax of discipleship, as it were. It was what every other step of this journey led to. Discipleship wasn't just for the benefit of the disciple. It was to share this new life with others. And without spiritually reproducing, disciples would eventually flunk out. In fact, every other expectation only built up to this one. Because once a disciple reproduced spiritually, the way of interpreting scripture and living would continue on. If disciples did not make other disciples, the rabbi's teachings and interpretations would die with the first disciples. All of those expectations, memorizing the rabbi's words, learning his traditions and understanding of scripture, imitating his actions, and making other disciples were only possible through an intimate, personal relationship. 
They were only possible by authentic, vulnerable interactions in which the disciple submitted himself to the rabbi and allowed the rabbi to mold and shape his actions and behaviors and even thoughts. Discipleship meant surrender. It meant abandonment, obedience, commitment, loyalty, devotion. Ultimately, it meant spiritual reproduction. Are you still with me? So, so Jewish children were educated early on to obey the law in order to be righteous. And some children were able to continue on into higher education, into this type of master-disciple relationship. But they had to find those rabbis themselves. And if they were given that honor of being a disciple, they were expected to memorize his words, learn his ways, imitate his actions, and reproduce themselves. All that happened through this intensely personal and committed relationship. And so into that cultural context, Jesus shows up along the Sea of Galilee and he chooses his first disciples. He breaks the norm and he calls them to follow him. Now, I don't want you to miss what's next because everything has been building to this point. You see, I believe at the heart of every scripture passage, there is a central idea, one that was the reason for the human author to pen the words and the Holy Spirit to inspire them. And I think the central idea of this particular passage is in verse 19, which we looked at just a moment ago. You see, Jesus doesn't highlight the first expectation of discipleship in his invitation. He doesn't say, come follow me and I'll show you how to, to um, memorize my words, though he will. He doesn't highlight the second expectation of discipleship in his culture. Come follow me and I'll show you how to observe the Sabbath and teach you how to pray and interpret traditions and customs from scripture, though he will. He doesn't inter highlight the third expectation. Come follow me and I'll teach you how to behave so that you might imitate my actions with such profound teachings as turn the other cheek and love your enemies. And through his examples and his interactions with religious leaders and Samaritans, and even Gethsemane and on the cross, Jesus would teach them how to act. But that's not a part of his initial calling. No, why does he encourage them to come and ask them to come and follow him? What is it that stands out among all expectations? Here's what he says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Discipleship is about all the things I just mentioned, but without the last truth, that of spiritual reproduction, we don't have genuine discipleship. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He came not for the healthy, but for the sick. And his followers must be on the same mission to bring others into a relationship with God in Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, at the heart of being a disciple of Christ is the imperative to reproduce ourselves spiritually. You and I need to be convinced of that. To put it simply, disciples make disciples. We know this is important, not only because Jesus begins this discipleship course for these four men with this teaching, but he finishes the education of the disciples at the very end of Matthew with the same truth. Do you remember what he says in Matthew 28, 19 to 20 to the then 11 disciples on the mountain in Galilee? Go, therefore, and what? Make disciples of all nations. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go and make disciples. I called you to it in the beginning when I called you at the Sea of Galilee. I chose you to do this. Now go and do it. And like bookends, Matthew calls our attention to the heart of discipleship. Disciples make disciples. We're not called to make Christians. Did you know that? Did you know that the term Christian is actually only used three times in the Bible? The term disciple, on the other hand, is used close to 300 times. We're not called to make converts. We're not called to make believers. No, we're called to invite others to become disciples. We don't have to argue them in, don't have to win them in, don't have to save them in. We're called to invite them in. Disciples don't make Christians converts or believers. Disciples make disciples. We're not called to be experts understanding every theological debate. We're not called to be able to explain away the problem of evil or present a lengthy discourse on the reason for human suffering. We're not called to argue or prove our stance on eschatology, the millennium, or the election. We're called to do what the apostles did, testify to what we've seen and heard, to tell others about what Jesus has done for us, about how he saved us from the bondage we once lived in, about how he's delivered us from death to life, about how he's opened our eyes to see what matters now and for eternity. Disciples don't need to be great theologians in order to witness. I'm not saying don't become a great theologian, by the way, but I'm saying you don't need to be one in order to share Christ with others. Disciples just need to make disciples. And while some are called to what we call vocational ministry, studying the word, devoting their livelihood to gospel ministry, we're not all called to that. We're not all called to be missionaries in foreign lands. We're not all called to be pastors. We're not all called to be church planters, but all of us are called to be disciples and disciples make disciples. Like Jesus, you and I are called to go where people are today onto the highways and byways of life to move out of our comfort zones, out of our Christian circles, and into the world. Like our master, we are to find people where they are, and as Paul admonished, be all things to all people so that we might win some. Foundation Church, that means not just opening the doors of this building on Sundays and hoping unbelievers will come in and hear the word as churches have done for centuries before. It means taking the word to the people. It means finding ways to go where would-be disciples live and work and investing yourselves in them so that you might spiritually reproduce because disciples make disciples. Perhaps we've made evangelism too complicated. Don't get me wrong. We should know how to present the gospel. We should be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within. But if you've used your lack of speaking skills, your lack of an extroverted personality or charisma or any other reason as an excuse for not sharing the gospel, it's time for you and I to realize that we're not called to be Billy Graham. We're called to share what God has done in our lives. To us does not belong the responsibility of converting others, only that of inviting others into the life of following Jesus that we are on. Because disciples make disciples. As we come to a close this morning, 
Can I ask you, are you convinced that discipleship must lead to spiritual reproduction? Maybe you've never considered that before. I pray that today the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to that truth. Because Jesus is unmistakably clear about it. Disciples make disciples. Maybe this morning you're stuck in your spiritual development. Like a Jewish youth, you've studied God's word, but you've never moved into a disciple-master relationship with Jesus Christ. So there is nothing exciting to you about the idea of inviting someone else into the faith you experience. In his book, Blue Like Jazz, Donald Miller talks honestly about his evangelistic misgivings before his faith deepened. Here's what he writes. I could not in good conscience tell a friend about a faith that didn't excite me. I couldn't share something I wasn't experiencing, and I wasn't experiencing Christianity. It didn't do anything for me at all. It felt like math, like a system of rights and wrongs and political beliefs, but it wasn't mysterious. It wasn't God reaching out of heaven to do wonderful things in my life. And if I would have shared Christianity with somebody, it would have felt mostly like I was trying to get somebody to agree with me rather than meet God. Is that you this morning? Jesus sees you today, and he wants you to know him personally, daily, every moment, for eternity. Or maybe today, this whole thing is brand new to you. You'd say, I know I'm not following Jesus. And so I can't even begin to think about inviting someone else into what I don't know myself. If you're either stuck in your development or you've never even entered into that relationship and you're feeling a nudge this morning, that nudge is the Holy Spirit. Just as Jesus went to those first disciples and he called out to them, he's calling out to you today. You need not initiate the relationship with him. You see, he's already done that work for you. He's paid the price for your sin, for all the things that you've done that have separated you from God. He gave his life and then he took it up again so that you might be free from the bondage you're experiencing. And he generously and mercifully is reaching out his nail-scarred hands, inviting you to join him on the journey of following. It's a journey that can begin today. You only need to get up and begin to follow. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for seeing us when we were far away. Seeing us in our brokenness, seeing us in our utter sinfulness and our lost condition. And we thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves and to become for us what we could not become. We thank you then that, that God, we need not be the ones to initiate this relationship with you, but in Jesus Christ, you have initiated the relationship. And I pray this morning for this church, for us together, that as we seek to, to be in this relationship with Jesus Christ, as we seek to be true disciples, that you'd help us to understand that, that as we grow 
And as we walk with the Lord, you've called us to be those who are spiritually reproducing. That you'd help us to, to be convinced of the truth that disciples make disciples. And I ask this morning that if we're stunted in our growth, if somehow we've made excuses for ourselves for why we're not sharing the gospel with others, that you would open our eyes fresh to the importance of this calling. And I pray this morning that if there are those who are hearing the call of Jesus Christ for the first time, that today would be the day in which they would say yes, and they would immediately get up and be prepared to follow. Lord, bless us, and may these words, may the truth of this text continue to inspire, encourage, and convict when it is needed in the moments, the hours, and the days to come. I pray these things in Jesus' name.